Good morning, church family. I hope that you are having a wonderful morning of worshiping the Lord Jesus. I know your body's here, but I pray that even now your spirit would join in and that we would listen attentively to the God, listen to this, who is speaking. He's speaking. As his word is going forth, even now the living God is speaking to Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. What a, a breathtaking privilege. And so um, I invite you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing our study of the law, and we are rejoicing in God's law that is righteous and holy and good. It expresses his character, his heart, his will for his people as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. What does righteousness look like? If Jesus was to produce his heart and life in us, then what does it look like to live a righteous life before the holy God? And praise his name, we're not just seeking to obey these laws in our own strength, but he has written his law on our hearts and has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to live a new and a holy life. And so with that in mind, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And it's another short one today. Verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children and as your servants to receive from you the gift of your word. I pray that we would come humbly and with fear and with trembling, seeking to obey. Lord, I pray you see all the different hearts, those that have hurt um, in this area, those that uh, are living in victory, those that are flailing about in sin. And I pray that for each one, that you would come and that you would speak that you would heal, that you would give hope, and that we would press on to pursue holiness in the fear of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I listened to a, another message on this from about 30 years ago uh, this week, and it sounded like he was speaking to today's culture to say that this command is countercultural is a vast understatement. The 30 years ago when they were saying that adultery was prevalent in the U.S., it was like a Puritan era compared to now. And if you were just to look around our world, there's no more visible way that we are completely upside down in living in a Romans 1 world than observing how sexually deviant our culture is, embracing and celebrating sexual deviance and perversity. In our society, sex has been completely divorced from marriage. It's also been divorced from fruitfulness within marriage. And our sexuality has been divorced from our bodies. Marriage is either avoided altogether or it is treated like a contract that could be entered into or gotten out of at the whims of feeling. Many have even sought to redefine it altogether in their pride and in their perversity. And I was reminded of an instance when I first got up here. This was back in 2014 before we ever had our first official gatherings as a church. And we were looking for a place to meet. And so I actually went to the Marlboro Meeting House. I was invited to go there to interview for an interim speaking position over the summer in hopes that we could get Rivertown started by meeting in Marlboro weekly and that we would begin to gather people from among the lost and the unchurched in the area and we could see a new church formed for the glory of Christ. So I met with the deacons of their church to kind of interview for the job. And I knew this question was going to come up. We had some niceties. They asked me a lot of different things and then eventually it was like, okay, here we go. They said, are you open and affirming? And I said, we would be open to any person 
of all stripes or struggling with any sin to come and gather and worship with us. But we will affirm God's word and not sin. And they said, well, what is sin? And so I thought I'd give them a couple softballs first. So I was like, well, you know, things like not murder, don't steal, obey your parents, no sexual immorality, no homosexuality. I mean, we were kind of going down the list. And there was just sort of this incredulous feeling in the room. And one lady just kind of broke out in laughter, just kind of like slapping the table and saying, I just, I just want to say, like, who cares? What people do behind closed doors is their own business. And I just kind of let the laughter die down in the room. And then I said, well, the answer to your question is God cares very much. And so must we if we're going to uphold his word. And I tell you that story because I think it gives you a little window into where we are as a culture and society. These are deacons in a so-called church that are claiming to believe God's word. And they're saying, who cares, right? This is a, a bygone law from a Victorian era, and it has no bearing on our society. But God does care very much. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, the writer of Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So, questions for us this morning is why does God care so much about this? It's not enough for you as a church to be equipped for actually honoring God's word and delighting in it just to be able to say, well, he said it, so, and you have no idea, right? You, there are some churches that may under-teach their people so that the, it's just sort of like sex is bad and evil, it's a necessary evil, and you just need to treat it as evil your whole life long, but then you get married and you're supposed to flip the switch and treat it as good. Why does God care so much? What constitutes adultery? And how can we pursue holiness in the fear of God? So that's where we're going this morning. So the first question for us that we're going to treat as kind of our, our first section of our time together is what does the Bible say about marriage and sexuality? Before we ever talk about violating marriage, we need to understand what marriage is and why God gave it to us because this commandment is meant to protect and preserve the covenant of marriage and God's gift of sex so that we might flourish in God-fearing marriages and in life. It's so that we can live holy and upright lives with marriages that tell the truth about Christ and his church. So the first thing I want you to see about marriage is that it is a good gift that sex and marriage are good gifts from God. You can flip over a few pages to the beginning of your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see this very clearly. In verse 18, we're picking up, God had created male but not female yet. Verse 18 then of chapter 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, or sang, so happy, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, 
this should be very apparent to us, but note that this is before the fall of man and before sin entered into the world. And after God created all that he had made, he looked at everything and said, it is good. So God calls marriage good. He calls sex and sexuality that he made good. And he made male and female complementary to one another so that he, he comments on the text above saying, therefore, going forward in perpetuity, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And this was what will constitute marriage, what God joins together, Jesus said, quoting this passage, let no man separate. So marriage is God's bringing together of one man and one woman for a lifelong union where they can flourish according to God's good design. And sex is a good gift of God that is meant to function and flourish within that one flesh union. And God has very specific reasons for giving us such a good gift inside of marriage. It's the second piece I want us to consider, that marriage was designed to image the union of Christ in his bride, the church. So, very familiar passage to you, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is him, himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So hear this. Marriage is designed by God on purpose to tell the truth about a bigger relationship and a bigger reality, that your marriage is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about your happiness. It's not ultimately about your feelings, euphoric feelings of love and romanticism. Your marriage exists for a purpose, and that is to paint an accurate picture to the watching world of the true reality of God's covenant with his people in Christ Jesus. And so... Our marriages are to be marked by love and kept by resolve of the wills subjected to God, not marked by selfishness and kept by the whim of feelings. Husbands must choose the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility for their wives, leading them, loving them, serving her with integrity and sacrifice and joy. It is a gift to get to lay down your life for your bride and to lead her with sacrifice and with joy. Wives must choose to respect and love and serve and submit to their husbands with sacrificial joy and both fulfill their God-given different roles for the glory of Christ so that your marriage tells the truth about the way that the church is to submit to Christ and the way that Christ lays down his life in sacrificial love for his people. It's a living parable of Christ's covenant love and oneness for his church. And so that is why marriage must be guarded with such vigilance and integrity, why God gives us a command to protect and to preserve it. Because ultimately, the sanctity and sacredness of sex and marriage are telling a story way bigger than your own individual marriage. And it is more important than your very life. Marriage is designed to image the union of Christ in his, ch in his church, but it's also designed for fruitfulness. I'm not going to spend long here, but you have to know that this is how God has designed for his holy nation 
to be built is that he would bring together one man and one woman in one flesh union to where one plus one would equal one, a new life together, and that their relationship would be fruitful and would multiply so that the earth is filled with the renewed image of Christ Jesus. And there are conditions where childbearing is not possible. We want to be sensitive to that. But it is clear that God designed marriage and sexuality with an aim toward fruitfulness. It's one of his purposes in bringing you together and joining you together as husband and wife is so that he would build his holy nation through you bearing godly offspring. He says as much in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, saying, Did God not make them one, this husband and wife, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Answer, godly offspring. So one of, not the only reason why God brings people together in covenant marriage, but one of the reasons that God brings together people in covenant oneness is so that they would produce godly offspring. So the enemy, because he hates God and he hates his design and he hates his good gifts, works overtime to lead people to a perverse and deviant view of sex. You could look at our culture and think, wow, Satan is obsessed with sex. He loves it. But he actually hates it in the way that God intended him, knowing that it's such a weapon and such a good gift from God and demonstrates things about God's character and his kindness and the joy that God has in himself and giving lavish and good gifts to his children that he wants to attack it as one of the most dangerous gifts that God gave to men and pervert it in every single way possible. And so the command comes to us, sort of, Section number two, you shall not commit adultery. Now, on the surface, adultery is simply marital infidelity. It's you having sex outside of the covenant of marriage and breaking the bond of your marriage through having sex outside of God's intended design. And adultery is a grave abomination before a holy God. If you consider what is actually happening, God designed sex within marriage to be a mingling, not just of bodies, but of souls and a spiritual oneness as well. And so God has joined people together as one. And if you were to commit the sin of adultery, you would be committing sin against God. You would be committing sin against your own body and your own sexuality. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 6, you'd be committing sin against your wife, you'd be committing sin against your neighbor, and committing sin against his wife that you committed adultery with. And adultery is one of the few sins where you're actually bringing somebody else into participation with you in something that will lead them to hell. And so, God's law is very clear. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if any man is found in adultery, then he and the woman that he commits adultery with are to be put to death. It's the wages of sin, beloved, is death. But the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. We will get there, but we need to see the gravity of what we're talking about when we see the commandment come to us, you shall not commit adultery. Now, as with the other commandments, the law speaks to the gravest sin of its kind, and then we'll see it includes other sins of the same kind that lead to that place. So, adultery may be this final consummation of this sexuality outside of the context of marriage, but we will see there is an adultery of the heart. So, in this commandment, God condemns all forms of sexual activity in thought or in action that would violate the covenant of marriage. And that is because this, again, is a picture of the covenant oneness between Christ and the church. So throughout the Old Testament and in James's letter in the New Testament, 
God refers to the idolatry in the hearts of his people as adultery. He's saying, you were made to worship and to glorify me. You were made to live in covenant oneness with me. And so when your hearts go out in adoration and in worship of other things that are not God, God does not merely call that sin. He calls it adultery. In James, he says, you adulterous people, do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That to embrace the world and its system and its lust, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, you befriend that way of thinking with the world. And he says, you're an adulterous people. You are made to worship and to glorify me. That's why in that same passage that we just read in Malachi chapter 2, God is confronting two different kinds of adultery. You can write this down to study later. Malachi 2, verse 10 through 16. God confronts Israel's spiritual, or Judah's, excuse me, Judah's spiritual adultery, profaning the sanctuary of the Lord and marrying the daughter of a foreign god, meaning they've actually sold themselves in slavery to idolatry of a false god, like we read about in our reading of the law. But he also confronts infidelity in their marriages, and he commands them to guard themselves in their spirits and that no man be faithless to the wife of his youth. So you can see that this commandment comes to us because marriage is a picture of God's covenant with his people in Christ. And just as you can commit adultery in your marriage, so you can commit spiritual adultery against God with idolatry of the heart. Your physical adultery in your marriage actually accomplishes both. But like with the other commandments, this command does not just condemn adultery, but it commends the positive aspect of that command. So it commends pursuing faithfulness and love within marriage. The same law that condemns adultery commends sexuality within your marriage covenant. So don't commit adultery. Do delight in the wife of your youth. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 through 21. Solomon writes, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. So this is a sample from scripture of what is seen throughout, which is this commendation of Sex is righteous and holy and good when enjoyed in the context that God gave it to us in. And so this command to not seek selfish satisfaction outside of the marriage covenant also commends seeking to delight in each other within the covenant oneness that God gave to you as a gift. And so... Uh, maybe there's sometimes you struggle to with application of the word. This one should be pretty easy, okay? Go apply this. First Corinthians chapter 7 commends the same thing. Paul's saying right after he says husbands and wives should only have each other, Paul says that within marriage, the bodies of husbands and wives belong to each other. And that in order to prevent a possibility for temptation, that they should not deprive each other of conjugal rights. They should actually pursue this sexual oneness as a spiritual fight. In order to fight adultery, you pursue sexual purity and oneness and delight within your marriage covenant. So this command comes to us, do not commit adultery, but do pursue the flourishing of your marriage union. 
and delight in God's good gift of sex within your lifelong one flesh union between one man and one woman. Now, I know that for a lot of you, you have sexual trauma, sexual baggage, and that this is not just as easy as, all right, flip a switch and obey and like enjoy this here. For some of you, this is a battle. And we're going to get to how we fight to obey in community. But we need to know and observe, all right, this is God's command to us. Do not do this, but instead pursue this. All other expressions of sexuality outside of a one flesh union between one man and one woman in lifelong marriage is a perversion of God's design and intent. They don't tell the truth about the oneness between Christ and his church. You've likely heard it said before that sex within marriage is like a fire in the hearth. When it stays in the confines that God gave it to us in, it'll warm your heart, your home, your life. But if it gets outside of the covenant of marriage, it'll burn your house down. And that is what this seventh commandment is seeking to tell us as it seeks to protect and preserve the institution of marriage and the good gift of sexuality and fruitfulness within the covenant of marriage. So that's our aim. We want our marriages or our lives, whether you're single and pursuing purity or you're married and pursuing fidelity, you want your life to tell the truth about Christ and his church and about the holiness that is found in Jesus so that we might walk in love and not self-seeking and self-serving lust. So three, just as with the past weeks we see, Jesus deepens our understanding. So reminder that the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not love God's law, contrary to what you might hear. They actually despised God's law, the heart of it, but they loved their own self-righteousness, and so they wanted to look like they were keeping the law and doing enough to achieve God's favor through their own righteousness while ignoring the actual heart of the law. So they might feel great pride in avoiding sexual intercourse with somebody who was not their wife while having hearts that were full of adultery. And so Jesus comes as the lawgiver himself. Don't you love it when Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he inserts the law that he himself gave. So he's, he's not replacing the law. He's not changing the law. He's deepening our understanding, and he's illustrating that he is the lawgiver when he says things like, you have heard it said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the lawgiver is deepening our understanding. He's making sure we don't just aim at the outside letter of the law, but that we actually go to the heart of it for a real purity of heart and life. Now, I highlight this as we're considering do not commit adultery. So when Jesus deepens our understanding, he says, if you get divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality. So somebody broke by their own adultery the covenant of your bond of marriage, and you get divorced. God does not recognize it. In his eyes, you are still married. Covenant still exists. You may have gotten divorce papers from the state, but before God, you're still one with your spouse. And so Jesus is saying, Literally, if you go, if you get divorced and you go get married, it could be 10 years after the fact, but that original marriage was not broken by the case of adultery and you get remarried, then you have committed adultery. And the seventh commandment comes to us, you may not do that. Jesus clarifies in Matthew chapter 19, you want further commentary on this truth. Pharisees come up to him, testing him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said to them, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's very little for a commentary I'm preaching on this. It's very plain on the surface of the text. If you just read it for what it says, you must not commit adultery. You cannot divorce each other for any reason. And the ideal, if somebody was to commit adultery within marriage, is forgiveness, healing, restoration, reconciliation. And there are times when that is not possible. And in the case of adultery, Jesus permits remarriage without calling it adultery. But for any other reason, he says, you're not allowed to get remarried. You go be reconciled to the wife of your youth or remain single, but you must not commit adultery. He also gives the same language of you've heard it said, but I say to you when he highlights adultery of the heart. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He would see the same to women about men. That if you have adulterous thoughts or feelings that linger on somebody, then you have committed adultery in the heart. It's the same kind of sin. It's just like last week we saw that anger is, uh, or two weeks ago, excuse me, anger is murder in lion cub form. So lustful thoughts and glances and entertaining relationships with someone who's not your spouse or reading sexually explicit content or watching sexually explicit content, all of these things are adultery of the heart and are prohibited by the seventh commandment. They dishonor God. Now, I want to give you a brief snapshot of where we are as a culture and in our church and then conclude by how we fight with hope in Jesus Christ and his gospel together. Our country is far more adulterous than it even appears on the surface. And the problem is pervasive among God's people too. So I want you to hear this. We're going to end here and I want you to hear it before we get there. If you are battling sexual sin or you are failing in some way, there is hope and there is victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about real victory. So I want you to listen with hopefulness, even as we weep together over the brokenness that doesn't just exist out there, but within those who profess to be the people of God. One 2020 study stated that approximately 91% of men and 60% of women reported consuming, consuming porn in the past month. The porn industry generates more income than the combined revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS, or more than the combined revenues of the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB. In the USA, it's estimated that the porn industry generates between $6 billion and $15 billion a year. More people view internet pornography every month or visit those sites every month than visit Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. In 2016, people watched 4.6 billion hours of pornography at just one of more than 42 million pornographic sites. So just one site. That's equivalent to 524,000 years of time in just one year. It's a heartbreaking reality that 9 out of 10 boys and 6 out of 10 girls have been exposed to pornography before the age of 18. The average age of first exposure is about 11 years old. Some studies say as young as 8. And in one study, 
64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. So you and our children are walking through a minefield. And I want our church to fight and win with real Christ-enabled holiness that is faithful and pure. So how do we do that? So our last point for our time together is pursuing fidelity and purity. We start by making sure that we are waging war against sin. Right? There's no time for a peacetime mindset. You would think it was ridiculous if our country broke out in war and all of a sudden Brattleboro looked like the Gaza Strip right now. And we were all like, let's just go hiking or go hang out and have a picnic. And so in the same way, if you know that the enemy is coming after you and your children and has laid snares at every turn, you don't just walk about like there's no problem or with a naivety that's like, well, we'll be good or the Lord will protect us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So there are passions within you, deeds of the flesh, that wage war against God's spirit within you, Paul writes in Galatians. And these two are at odds against each other, and you are called to walk by God's spirit so that you do not carry out the desires of the flesh and that you actually live like you're in a real war because you are. So there's no time to live with a peacetime mindset with regards to your sin. That's why Jesus said in that same passage that we've been in, Matthew chapter 5, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that, you throw, that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, there have been whole like, groups of people that have actually gouged out their eyes. Jesus is using hyperbolic language to show you how radical you must get against your sin. And that hyperbolic language is still actually true. It would be better for you to lose an eyeball than to spend eternity in hell. Do you agree? But what is more precious to you than your sight? Jesus is using this language to highlight to you how serious it is. Your sin, your sexual temptations left unchecked or unrepented of will march you all the way to hell if you do not repent. If you're not fighting, if you just give in and you just follow the current, that river of lust will lead you all the way to hell. And so how do we fight? Romans 13 similarly uses imagery of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and laying seeds to your flesh, cutting off supply lines. So again, for study later, Romans 13, you can look at 11 through 14. Paul's urging us, you know the time. Right? This, it's time for us to walk as children of light and not live in darkness. And so let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or in drunkenness and not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so this is a call to urge you to not play games when it comes to sin. You can see this with King David. We talked about it this week with a friend. The chapter begins, now David stayed at home at the time when kings go to war. So he put himself in a wrong position. He was like the, the man in Proverbs, the young man lacking sense, who took the road by the way of the adulteress even if it was the shortest path to get from here to there. He should have taken the long route to act to avoid any temptation to sin, to not make provision for sin with regard to its lust. And so you know yourself, or you need to, of what kind of 
boundaries and, and safety nets that need to be put in place in order for you to not make provision for your flesh. You don't play games with yourself. You don't act like you're stronger than you are where you put yourself in position like, I'm just got to look up this thing real quick and I'm by myself and I battle this all the time, but God protect me. And then you go down this road, you know that you weren't, you weren't strong enough. That's for down the road when you have more victory and you're more mature. You have to put yourself in position where there's, n- there's no outlet or opportunity. You're at war. Instead, we ought to flee. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Half of the fight is getting this word deep within your heart so that you have it to pull from when the battle comes and you slash back with the sword. But this battle, this waging of the war starts with where you set your mind. So this is how all temptation works. It starts with the mind. It appeals to your affections or your desires, and then you act it out with your body. And so the battle starts with where are you setting your mind? What do you set your mind on? We're called in the scriptures to set our mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth where Christ is seated and we're reminded we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so because we've died with Christ, we have to wage war and put to death what is earthly in us. And all of that comes with this command, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. We have to have a a mindset of fighting selfish desires of every kind. You cannot expect to fight sexual indulgence while indulging yourself in all these other areas of your life. So you're a glutton over here, but you're seeking to be sexually pure over here. But the problem is you love yourself and you're gratifying yourself at every turn. So the solution to being sexually pure, the the way to get there is through denying yourself and finding superior satisfaction and pleasure in Christ Jesus. You're enjoying him by his word so much that when the enemy comes and offers you these temptations, it's like somebody offering you an appetizer after you've already had your full course meal. You say, I'm all set. I feel stuffed because I've been so satisfied in finding real enjoyment in Christ that I'm not interested. So we have to know that we're at war. You have to know where to set your mind And you have to have a Christ-enabled resolve. You just have to actually know that you're not a victim to all these outside uh, circumstances happening to you and there's just no way out. You have to choose to pursue holiness in the fear of God. It's your choice. I've told this to countless young men. There are men in this church who are battle-tested in this and walking in victory. And so if you're not, come talk to us. By the grace of God, your pastors are not these stats that you see where one in seven pastors says that he's looked at pornography in the last whatever time. That's not us. And so if you want victory, let's go get it together. But you have to resolve in your mind. Like Job, we read this week, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a virgin. I I am choosing to walk in holiness. You've got scripture lodged in your heart like this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You, you learn how to control your own body in holiness and honor. You have to do that. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Is the way that you're living, does it tell the truth that you know God, that you actually walk with Christ Jesus? If you actually know him and walk with him and are enjoying him, there's not room for lesser pleasure. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so I urge you, don't disregard your God, but instead resolve to obey him. And then last Last point before I end with the closing encouragement for you is that we wage war in community. The first community that you wage war in, beloved, is your own marriage, if you're married. So I say this all the time with regards to sin, and it is especially true here. The best defense is a good offense. We know that. If you know football at all, the other team cannot score on you if your offense is on the field, right? So the best defense is time of possession and holding the ball for a long time. And so, man, if you want to avoid seeking happiness in another marriage or another person, then one of the best solutions is to pursue happiness in your own marriage and to let each other be your love and your delight. If your wife is your Eve, or your husband is Adam, and there's no other options, you'd be surprised how delighted you are in each other, right? There's no other option, then this is really great. But that's what God's design is, is that you would actually wage war in community, the first community being your own marriage. But all of the passages that command us towards purity come to us as a church in community. So when Paul says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. He's talking to a church, plural, you, all of you. Let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality named among you. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so we fight together. We have accountability with one another. We hold each other up and encourage one another. And when one person is weak, another person is strong, and we fight together. And I want to close with his last exhortation, and that is to believe the gospel and to trust Christ for victory. There is forgiveness in Christ for adulterers, and there is victory in Christ for those who want a way out. That's why Paul writes in that same 1 Corinthians 6 passage at the beginning, he warns us and says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, among other things, will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. Now listen to this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there is hope for the worst sexually deviant and perverse person in Brattleboro, there is hope that they could have the testimony, such were some of you. But there's forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. There's washing, there's cleansing, and then there's a call to us as new creations to live a new and holy life. Not to live by our passions that we lived by when we didn't know Jesus, but to actually walk in the beauty of his holiness. So I want to close by reminding you of this passage in John chapter 8, where Jesus finds this, or Jesus has brought this woman who's found caught in adultery. And they're seeking to test him, and they say, Jesus, the law says that this woman ought to be stoned. What do you say? And he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says they all walk away starting with the oldest, because they know how sinful they are, and everyone walks away, because they know, actually, I'm not, I'm not a righteous enough person where I could actually stand above the law to judge this woman, even though it is what she deserved. And the only person standing there who had the right to throw the first rock and to throw all the rocks was the Lord Jesus himself. He would have been perfectly righteous and just in that moment to stone her himself. But he looks at her, and he says, daughter did no one condemn you and she says no one lord his response to her is 
neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the Lord Jesus' stance and heart towards adulterers. He is, in effect, saying, I have taken your sin on myself, and I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm going to experience all the stoning that you deserve for your sin. And by my grace, I am forgiving you of your sin and pardoning you of your iniquity, and I declare you clean. Now listen, stop, sin no more. And so that, if you are found either wallowing in guilt over past sin or presently struggling and fighting, you need to hear this. There is hope and forgiveness and victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have this testimony, such were some of you, but you have been washed and cleansed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he lavishes you with his Holy Spirit so that you would actually have the strength to obey. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we praise you for the good gift First, of the reality of covenant oneness with Christ Jesus, our Lord, that in him uh, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness, that we have actually been made one as a church with the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that is his is ours. I pray that you would give us grace to live in this oneness with you. And, Father, we are pleading with you. We want our lives to tell the truth about your character and what you're like We want individually to live lives that are holy because you are holy and we were made to image Christ to the world. And so we want to tell the truth about Jesus and his strength and his righteousness. But Lord, we fail so much and we find ourselves in shame or in guilt. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us up from those places into a place of real Christ-exalting victory, where our church is marked by the gospel of the grace of God, where we believe the forgiveness that you have for us in Christ Jesus, and we embrace the power to obey by the Holy Spirit, whom you have lavished on us in your kindness. Please give us grace, Lord, to tell the truth with our marriages and with our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.